Bridge to Eternity, a retreat guide on the Sacrament of Holy Orders. Introduction. For many years, my religious order followed a tradition of ordaining our members to the priesthood on Christmas Eve. I remember preparing for my own ordination, eight days of silent retreat full of prayer and penance as Christmas approached, and then on Christmas Eve, becoming a priest of Jesus Christ for all eternity. It's hard to forget an experience like that. But why schedule priestly ordinations for Christmas Eve? Why not choose a date more convenient for families traveling to celebrate their son's ordinations? What's the point of piling such an important celebration onto a day that is already overflowing with liturgical significance? It's all about the symbolism. The Sacrament of Holy Orders, instituted by Jesus himself, is meant to be an extension throughout history of Christ's own incarnation, of his priestly mission to this fallen world, which begins to shine out with the birth of the Savior in Bethlehem on Christmas night. In a sense, every ordination truly is another Bethlehem, the birth of a messenger and bearer of God's saving grace into a world needing redemption. Bridge to Eternity a retreat guide on the Sacrament of Holy Orders will explore this mysterious reality. In the first meditation, we will prayerfully reflect on God's vision for the Holy Orders of deacon, priest, and bishop. In the second meditation, we will look at how Jesus, the Good Shepherd, is the model of every priest. And in the conference, we will examine some of the reasons behind the discipline of priestly celibacy. To begin, Let's take a few minutes to thank God for the gift of all his sacraments and to ask him to bless this time we will spend with him as we seek to penetrate just a little bit more fully the great mystery of holy orders, our bridge to eternity. First Meditation Bridging the Gap Introduction What is a deacon, a priest, a bishop? What role does God call these sacred ministers to have in the life of the church and of the world? Furthermore, knowing the weakness of human beings, so evident in the sins and scandals linked to many ordained ministers throughout the centuries, why in the world did God invent this sacrament in the first place? We can only begin to answer these questions in a short meditation like this, but a good beginning is a worthy endeavor. Let's start by reflecting briefly on the priesthood in general, in its broad human context. Then we will better be able to appreciate how, in Christ, God elevated and brought to fulfillment the basic human need for priests. Natural Religion Every human society that we know of has had religious practices. Signs of mankind's attempt to communicate with the divine accompany even the earliest archaeological evidence of a human presence on earth. For example, the earliest humans buried their dead out of a sense of respect for the afterlife, for unseen spiritual realities. 
Some modern thinkers chalk this up to ignorance and superstition in primitive peoples. But the Catechism goes deeper when it tells us, the desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God. Human beings are made by God and for God. We are naturally religious. Christ the Priest, a real bridge from God to man and from man to God. Yet, natural religion differs from Christianity because it is one-directional. It is mankind's natural effort to enter into relationship with God. Natural religion uses prayers, sacrifices, and other rituals to try and bridge the gulf between the fallen, sinful human family and God. But just as a drowning man cannot save himself, neither can we return to full communion with God merely by our own efforts. Only God can bridge the gulf between earth and heaven, between eternal happiness and temporal suffering. And that's exactly what he did when he sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior. As true God and true man, Christ himself is the bridge to eternity that reconnects the human and divine. This unique role in salvation history makes Christ a unique priest. In natural religion, and even in ancient Israel, Priests were members of a society set aside to take special care of the community's relationship with God. The ancient Roman term for priest expresses this well. It is pontifex, and it comes from two Latin words, pons and facere, meaning to make a bridge. But they could only make half of the bridge, the half that touches the human side of the relationship. Jesus, on the other hand, is the true eternal priest. As man, he is able to make the human side of the bridge, and as God, he is able to connect that human side to the divine side. This is why Jesus' priesthood, unlike that of the Old Covenant or of merely natural religions, is definitive and everlasting. He alone has truly reopened the flow of grace between God and mankind once for all, and so he alone is a priest forever as the letter to the Hebrews makes clear. The Common Priesthood of All the Faithful When Christ claims us for his own through baptism, we become sharers in that unique and everlasting priesthood. We participate in what is called the Common Priesthood of All Believers. Thus, in Christ, our prayers, our worship, and our sacrifices are truly pleasing to God and have a real effect on the history of salvation. They move back and forth across the priestly bridge of Christ, spreading real communion between God and the human family. For this reason, the Catholic Church of the New Covenant takes on Israel's title of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Conclusion. I have chosen you. Nevertheless, Christ himself also established another type of priesthood, a sacramental and ministerial priesthood. He called 12 of his disciples 
and set them aside to be full-time ministers of his new covenant. The Gospels clearly mark out the main characteristics that Jesus gave to these first recipients of the Sacrament of Holy Orders. In the first place, he graced them with a special kind of intimate friendship. He called them intentionally and kept them close to him. As St. Mark puts it, he went up the mountain and summoned those whom he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him. Secondly, he entrusted them with special responsibility and authority to teach in his name, to govern the church and to spread the message that he had come to reveal to the world and to authorize others to do the same. Here is how St. Matthew expresses it at the end of his gospel, when Jesus addresses his chosen apostles for the last time before his ascension into heaven. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Another characteristic of the priesthood as Christ envisions it has to do with his delegation of the authority to forgive sins, to administer the sacrament of reconciliation. Here is how St. John describes it. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Finally, the most critical role of ordained ministers in the life of Christ's church is to perpetuate throughout all time the Lord's own unique sacrifice that atoned for the sin of mankind and reestablished communion between God and the human family. This was the sacrifice of his own body and blood on the cross at Calvary, made present in the day-to-day reality of every one of his faithful followers through the celebration of the Eucharist, through the Mass. St. Paul calls this to mind when he explains the meaning behind the Mass and reminds the Christians in Corinth that the Mass is not just a symbol of the Lord's sacrifice of his body and blood, but a true making present of that sacrifice so that each of us can benefit from it and unite our lives to it. He writes, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. These, then, are the key characteristics of holy orders, and they clearly flow from the Lord's own plan for his church. Jesus himself is the eternal high priest of the whole human race, He is the bridge between time and eternity, but he extends that bridge into our lives through the authority, the teaching, and the sacraments of the Church, which come to us through the service of ordained ministers. The sacrament of holy orders, then, is God's way of guaranteeing that all of us have everything we need to reach the fulfillment that comes from living in communion with God. Take some time now to savor and appreciate this part of God's plan. The following questions and quotations may help your meditation. Three questions for personal reflection or group discussion. Why might Christ have chosen to exercise his eternal priesthood through the collaboration of ordained ministers.
How deep is my faith in and respect for the priesthood of Christ present in every validly ordained Catholic priest? How often is my faith and respect overly dependent on whether a particular priest is entertaining, nice, or otherwise agreeable in a merely natural sense? What would it look like for me to obey more fully Christ's commandment to love your neighbor as you love yourself in relation to the ordained ministers whom I know and interact with on a regular basis? Three quotations to help your meditation. Mark chapter 3 verses 13 through 19. He went up the mountain and summoned those whom he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Simon, whom he called Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, whom he named Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1549. Through the ordained ministry, especially that of bishops and priests, the presence of Christ as head of the church is made visible in the midst of the community of believers. In the beautiful expression of St. Ignatius of Antioch, the bishop is typos tuo patros. He is like the living image of God the Father. Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1584. Since it is ultimately Christ who acts and effects salvation through the ordained minister, the unworthiness of the latter does not prevent Christ from acting. St. Augustine states this forcefully. As for the proud minister, he is to be ranked with the devil. Christ's gift is not thereby profaned. What flows through him keeps its purity and what passes through him remains dear and reaches the fertile earth. The spiritual power of the sacrament is indeed comparable to light. Those to be enlightened receive it in its purity, and if it should pass through defiled beings, it is not itself defiled. Second Meditation Shepherds Like the Good Shepherd Introduction One of the amazing things about the Catholic Church, the Church that Jesus founded, is its consistency. The same sacraments and the same hierarchical structure that we experience in the Church today were already in place at the time of St. Paul in the first century. The priestly duties conferred by Christ on his first apostles were passed on by them to a second generation of ordained ministers, and that chain has been unbroken ever since.
Here is how Pope St. Clement described this process in his letter to the Corinthians, written around the year 96 AD. The apostles were made preachers of the gospel to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent by God. Accordingly, when they had proclaimed the word through country districts and cities and had tested the first converts of these by the Spirit, they appointed bishops and deacons of those who were to believe. Sacred Hands The way that appointment of holy orders happened has an important meaning for all of us. Even in the New Testament, the essential elements are already described. Ordaining a deacon, priest, or bishop consisted of the laying on of hands and a prayer of consecration. And it is still the same today in administering holy orders. This laying on of hands was present even in the Old Testament. For example, the book of Deuteronomy tells us, Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and him the Israelites obeyed, carrying out the order which the Lord had given to Moses. The hands are a symbol of strength and action, of work and good deeds. By choosing to administer the sacrament of holy orders in this way, the Holy Spirit shows that ordained ministry is primarily a sacrament of service for others. The priest is not ordained for his own benefit or honor, but for the benefit of the people of God, of the kingdom of Christ. Here's how the Catechism puts it. That office which the Lord committed to the pastors of his people is in the strict sense of the term a service. It depends entirely on Christ and on his unique priesthood. It has been instituted for the good of men and the communion of the church. The sacrament of holy orders communicates a sacred power, which is none other than that of Christ. The exercise of this authority must therefore be measured against the model of Christ, who by love made himself the least and the servant of all. The Lord said clearly that concern for his flock was proof of love for him. In other words, the model for every priest is Christ himself. Although the sacred power to celebrate the sacraments comes to an ordained minister automatically, so to speak, every recipient of holy orders is also called by God to cultivate a lifestyle and a manner of celebrating those sacraments that reflects Christ's own goodness, humility, and wisdom in every way. Deacons, priests, and bishops are called to act, work, and serve the people of God just as Christ did. They are called to become true pastors, shepherds of God's people, after the example of the chief shepherd, Christ himself. All this is symbolized by the sacramental act of ordination through the laying on of hands. Just as Jesus welcomed repentant sinners, the priest, through the sacrament of confession, does the same. Just as Jesus fed the hungry crowds with miraculously multiplied bread, so the priest administers Holy Communion to people hungering after holiness. Just as Jesus healed and comforted the sick and suffering, so the priest administers the sacrament of anointing to all who are in need. Just as Jesus taught true doctrine, even in the face of violent opposition, so the priest proclaims the teaching of Christ and the Church persistently, whether it is convenient or inconvenient.
And just as Jesus laid down his life on the altar of the cross to pay the price for sin and reveal the limitlessness of God's merciful love, so the priest pours out his own life for the sake of those entrusted to his spiritual care, drawing all his strength from the altar of the Mass. Gift and Mystery This vision of holy orders makes it clear why no one has a right to become an ordained minister. From the very first, the initiative was with God, as Jesus made clear during the Last Supper when he said, It was not you who chose me, but I who chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit that will remain. When God calls a man to be a priest, he is calling him to enter into the mystery of spiritual fatherhood to die to himself in order to become a channel of grace for others. Once again, we see God's humility at work. He chooses to take care of his beloved flock through the free collaboration of ordinary men chosen for an extraordinary mission. And the history of the Church is bursting with ordained ministers who have lived their extraordinary vocation to imitate Christ the Good Shepherd with dynamism, heroic devotion, and dramatic ingenuity. Deacons like St. Francis of Assisi, priests like St. John Vianney, and bishops like St. John Paul II show the face of the Good Shepherd to the world in every generation. Conclusion God is Faithful Unfortunately, though, not every priest is faithful nor is every bishop and deacon. But Christ is, and he will continue to send his grace into the church even if some of his shepherds fail him. Indeed, for the faith-filled Catholic, the mere fact of the continued existence of the sacrament of holy orders is a constant reminder of Christ's own unfailing love and providence, as well as an undeniable proof of the eternal vitality of his church. St. Matthew gives us a privileged glimpse into our Lord's faithful, priestly heart at the end of the ninth chapter of his gospel. He writes, At the sight of the crowds, his heart was moved with pity for them because they were troubled and abandoned like sheep without a shepherd. And in the same passage, Jesus admonished his followers that the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest, to send out laborers for the harvest. Let's take some time now to do that, to ask God to keep sending good shepherds to his church and to give us all the generosity and courage we need to say yes to God's calling in our own lives and to help others do the same. In the conference, we will look at some of the reasons behind priestly celibacy. But for now, let's speak with our Lord in the quiet of our hearts about this beautiful, powerful sacrament that he has given us as a bridge from time into eternity. The following questions and quotations may help your meditation. Questions for personal reflection or group discussion. It is easy for us to see that no ordained minister is a perfect shepherd of his flock. 
Only Christ himself is perfect. How does God want us to deal with the flaws of our shepherds? When was the last time I prayed for my parish priest, for my bishop? How firmly do I believe that they truly need the support of our prayers? When was the last time I asked a young man if he had ever felt a call to the priesthood? Would I feel comfortable doing that if I met a young man who seemed like he would be a good priest? Why or why not? How regularly do I pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers for the harvest? Three quotations to help your meditation. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Jesus went around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and curing every disease and illness. At the sight of the crowds, his heart was moved with pity for them, because they were troubled and abandoned like sheep without a shepherd. The harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for the harvest. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the presbyters among you, as a fellow presbyter and witness to the sufferings of Christ, and one who has a share in the glory to be revealed, tend to the flock of God in your midst, overseeing not by constraint, but willingly, as God would have it, not for shameful profit, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those assigned to you, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd is revealed, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 2 through 7 and 15 through 16. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, To the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been pasturing themselves. Should not shepherds pasture the flock? You consumed milk, wore wool, and slaughtered fatlings, but the flock you did not pasture. You did not strengthen the weak, nor heal the sick, nor bind up the injured. You did not bring back the stray, or seek the lost, but ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and became food for all the wild beasts. They were scattered and wandered all over the mountains and high hills. Over the entire surface of the earth my sheep were scattered. No one looked after them or searched for them. Therefore, shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. I myself will pasture my sheep. I myself will give them rest. The lost I will search out, the strays I will bring back, the injured I will bind up, and the sick I will heal. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd them 
in judgment. Conference, Priestly Celibacy for the Sake of the Kingdom. Introduction. Celibacy, the priest's free commitment to a life of chastity while remaining unmarried, has long been a distinctive trait of the Catholic priesthood, so much so that it's almost always one of the first things non-Catholics associate with the Catholic Church. But the celibate priesthood has its critics. Taking a brief look at some of their arguments against celibacy will help generate a fuller understanding and appreciation of the Church's wise and convincing reasons for it. Celibacy and Sexuality Perhaps the most common argument against celibacy is married priests would have fewer difficulties living out their sexuality. In the first place, this argument posits a superficial conception of marriage and sexuality, as if marriage were merely a vehicle for letting off sexual steam. Marriage and marital intimacy are a lot more than that. In fact, marriage too is a sacrament, an efficacious sign of God's grace. It shouldn't be demeaned. But this objection makes two other ungrounded assumptions. First, it assumes that most priests have noteworthy difficulty living out their vow of celibacy. Now, it's clear that some priests do, and they make the news because of it. But it's not clear that most, or even a slight majority, or even many priests do. Not at all. Second, the argument assumes that most married men don't have difficulty living out their sexuality. As if, as soon as a man gets married, all temptations and difficulties just disappear. This is clearly false. Pornography is equally rife among bachelors and husbands, and marital infidelity remains one of the leading causes of divorce. Furthermore, the most reliable statistics indicate that married men are also just as likely as single men to be involved in sexual abuse crimes, and even more likely than celibate priests. So letting priests marry would not magically remove temptations and difficulties. Whether celibate, married, or single, all Catholic men are called to live the virtue of chastity, and that always takes a healthy combination of self-discipline, maturity, and God's grace, no matter what. The Historical Context Another common argument goes like this. Priestly celibacy was invented later in history and is an expression of a male chauvinistic culture. In the early pre-male dominated church, priests were married. Therefore, priests today should also be allowed to marry. This objection depends on inaccurate history and flawed theology. Priestly celibacy didn't begin later in history. It began with Jesus Christ, who was celibate continued in New Testament times, with St. John the Evangelist and St. Paul, for instance, and has been present in the Church ever since. It is true that some of the first apostles and many of the priests and bishops in the early Church were married, but that doesn't imply that celibacy was a later invention. Rather, 
married priests and celibate priests coexisted in the first centuries of the church's history, even though celibacy was preferred. So preferred, in fact, that in the early Middle Ages, it was made a required discipline for all priests of the Latin rite. Married priests exist in the Oriental Catholic churches, although usually bishops are required to be celibate. But even in those traditions, once a man is ordained to the priesthood, he cannot marry. So, historically speaking, priestly celibacy has been around as long as the church has been around. Theologically, the celibacy undertaken for the kingdom of Christ is rooted in the gospel itself, not in a medieval program of male domination. Jesus praises celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. He says, Not all can accept this word, but only those to whom it is granted. Some are incapable of marriage because they were born so. Some because they were made so by others. Some because they have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever can accept this ought to accept it. St. Paul also praises the celibate state in his first letter to the Corinthians. He writes, Now to the unmarried and to widows I say, It is a good thing for them to remain as they are, as I do. Those who marry will experience affliction in their earthly life, and I would like to spare you that. I should like you to be free of anxieties. An unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is anxious about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and he is divided. St. Paul concludes by pointing out that both marriage and celibacy are good, saying that whoever marries does well, and whoever refrains from marriage for the sake of the kingdom does better. Historically, therefore, Celibacy was not an invention of the Middle Ages, and theologically, it has nothing to do with unjust male domination. We'll go further into what it does have to do with later on. Celibacy and Vocations Another objection claims that allowing priests to marry would end the shortage of priestly vocations. This objection is naive and superficial. In the first place, the shortage of priests is not universal. Some parts of the world are experiencing it, while seminaries in other parts of the world are showing an abundance of vocations. If the problem were celibacy, why would there be such a discrepancy? Second, the countries that are suffering a lack of vocations to the priesthood now did not suffer such a lack in years past. Again, if the problem were celibacy, why the discrepancy? Third, plenty of mainstream Protestant churches allow their clergy to marry, but this hasn't flooded their seminaries. Clearly, the so-called vocations crisis needs to look elsewhere for a solution. Celibacy and Counseling Another objection claims that married priests would be better equipped to counsel married couples. This objection is also based on two faulty assumptions. The first is that Catholic couples are only supposed to receive counsel from priests. That's not true. A healthy diocese or parish offers engaged and married couples the services of well-formed Catholic physicians and psychiatrists, 
on matters where medical expertise is required. They also offer mini courses and retreats that include sessions with experienced couples who can help younger couples overcome difficulties and make the most of opportunities. The priest who cuts himself off from this kind of help is simply not being faithful to the mind of the church. The second faulty assumption is that you have to actually experience all the problems that marriages can undergo in order to be able to help solve them. That's like saying that a doctor has to suffer from a disease himself in order to be able to identify and cure it. If this were the case, no one would be qualified to give marriage counsel because no one person has experienced all the problems that can crop up in a marriage. But even so, priests can become excellent guides and supports for married couples. A dedicated priest takes his spiritual fatherhood seriously and can get to know hundreds of families and married couples in the course of his ministry, maybe even thousands. He learns from this vast experience. He accompanies couples through the good times and the bad. He gets to know the symptoms, causes, and solutions of the most common and uncommon marriage and family troubles. And because of his exclusive dedication to the church, both men and women can approach him with confidence, with openness. Maybe they will need to talk to experts or experienced married couples about particular psychological or physiological issues, but they can open their hearts to the priest. In this way, the priest becomes a truly unique resource for married couples, an objective, but at the same time caring and experienced spiritual guide for the people entrusted to his ministry. The Reasons for Celibacy Those are some frequent arguments made against celibacy and some brief answers. But the real reasons for priestly celibacy are more than just responses to objections. They show the immense advantages of a celibate priesthood, both for the priest and for the church. There are three of them. First, there's the Christological reason. What is a Catholic priest? Someone whom God has chosen to exercise Christ's own eternal priesthood in a particular place and time. Through the ordained priest, Christ himself pastures his flock, feeding them with the Eucharist, interceding for them through the Mass and the Liturgy of the Hours, healing them with the sacraments of anointing and confession. In short, a Catholic priest is an extension of Christ's incarnation. His total dedication to the little part of the Church that has been entrusted to him is a visible sign of Christ's total dedication to the Church as a whole. A celibate priesthood is a clearer expression of this. It's a clearer manifestation of Christ himself, who was celibate, married to the Church, his only bride. There's also the ecclesiological reason. Ecclesial means having to do with the Church. This is a practical reason. A man who has no wife and family of his own can, objectively speaking, be more available to go wherever his bishop needs him. He can dedicate all his time, all his attention, and all his affection to the demands of his ministry. Certainly, it's not impossible for a married priest to be faithful and dedicated to his community. But objectively speaking, celibacy provides greater internal freedom and external flexibility. The third reason is referred to as 
the eschatological reason. Eschatology has to do with the last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Christ tells us in the Bible that there is no marriage in heaven. The indescribable happiness of heaven, the fulfillment that comes from living in perfect communion with God and with the saints, makes marriage as we understand it here below obsolete. The celibate priesthood, like the perfect chastity vowed by members of religious orders and other consecrated persons, is a constant reminder of this. A reminder that even the greatest natural pleasure and meaning that this world has to offer, that which comes from the intimacy of marriage and family life, will be superseded. A reminder that this world is not all there is. A reminder that our sexuality means much more than just having sex. The celibate priesthood is, in short, a billboard for heaven. Conclusion. More than a theory. These reasons are not just theoretical. They are also the result of the Church's experience. During the first Christian centuries, before making celibacy a requirement for all priests in the Latin rite, Catholics gradually came to understand and appreciate the advantages of a celibate priesthood in the day-to-day -day life of their communities. They realized how valuable the gift or charism of a celibate priesthood is, and so it became the norm. In recent years, under pressure from non-Catholic Christians and from the challenges of postmodern society, the Church has re-examined this discipline, rediscovered its power and its beauty, and explicitly reaffirmed it. And so, as we continue to pray to the Lord for many dedicated and holy priests, we should also thank him for this great charism of celibacy and humbly ask him to keep lavishing it on those he calls to the priesthood. Take some time now to reflect on the ten questions in the personal questionnaire, which are designed to help you understand this teaching more deeply. Personal Questionnaire How much do I value the gift of celibacy in the Church and in the priests and consecrated persons who pour out their lives in service to God and the human family? Which priests have had the biggest positive impact on my life? What was special about them? What was the gift that they brought into my life? Why is celibacy one of the most common topics talked about by critics of the Catholic Church? Living the virtue of chastity in any state of life, including marriage, requires the help of God's grace. How deeply do I understand the value of that virtue? How sincerely do I desire to live out my sexuality as God designed it to be lived out, even seeking wise advice and help when I need it. 
Which of the arguments against celibacy mentioned in this conference have I heard before? If I were to hear it again, how would I respond to it in my own words? How would I describe in my own words the Christological reason behind the discipline of celibacy, the ecclesiological reason, the eschatological reason? Why is celibacy more than just a negative restriction for priests who live out their mission as a total gift of self to Christ and his church? Many priests truly feel married to the church. How clearly do I understand what that means? How can I grow in my understanding of it? How important is it for us to listen to the wisdom of the church's experience? Why should we not be too quick to discard a discipline such as celibacy under the pressure of conformity to the postmodern world? What can I do, concretely, to support, defend, and repay my local deacons, priests, and bishops? Further reading. I will give you shepherds. Apostolic letter by St. John Paul II. Dignities and duties of the priest by St. Alphonsus Liguori. Many are called. Rediscovering the glory of the priesthood by Scott Hahn. Priests for the third millennium by Timothy Dolan. The priest is not his own by Fulton Sheen. The Apostolic Origins of Priestly Celibacy by Christian Cochini. If you liked this retreat, please help support future retreat guides by making a donation at rcspirituality.org. Retreat guides are a service of Regnum Christi and the Legionaries of Christ. Regnumchristi.org Legionofchrist.org Retreat guides are produced by Coronation, coronationmedia.com.